Ken, do you ever tell yourself a joke and then realize you can't say it on the podcast? <laughs> <laughs> Brunswick Archaeology Podcast, featuring your hosts, Gabe Ryan and Ken Holyoke. Welcome back to the New Brunswick Archaeology Podcast. I'm Gabe Reinick here in Fredericton, New Brunswick, and I'm joined, as I am every fortnight, by Ken Holyoke in Lethbridge, Alberta, in his carefully baffled, that's right, baffled, I think that's, uh, that's what they call quilts in Alberta, home <laughs> office. I, I, I see he's got the, the quilt wrapped around everything for maximum acoustic um benefit how are you ken i'm making this a hi-fi experience like you you have not had thus far until i guess the last episode of the new brunswick archaeology podcast it's going well here you may hear some whistling in the background and that is the high winds that we're experiencing this evening the uh, the tornado watch has ended though so i won't have to pull the pull shoot to go hide in the basement but um uh there there was a tornado touchdown about like 10 oh, wow. 10 15 kilometers north of the city so Oh, that's pretty exciting. Does that happen a lot out there? Uh, I don't know. Um, Interesting. But my daughter's soccer was not canceled. Uh, Well, I mean, we uh, were talking about this. It is a terrible sport. Yeah. So we, I've opted. We opted to not go. Yeah. Um, Yeah. yeah. To spend a you know an evening on an open field with black clouds in the sky. Yeah. Uh, how, how did uh, you know not to not to pry too much into your into your personal life, but how did soccer end up on the docket? uh inexpensive spring sport right right um yeah I, get I, kids I, lots I think of opportunities just, you know yeah yeah well hopefully this one doesn't stick you're you're in my <laughs> prayers anyway um and uh, we're sponsored this this fortnight as we are uh every fortnight by the association of professional archaeologists of new brunswick still no website sorry listener it's field season coming up um that's actually not the biggest hurdle. The biggest hurdle is that we don't know how to run a website. And uh, so therefore, I've not fixed it um, since it's been down. Um, Ken, uh, if a, a listener wanted to contact you or me, though, uh, how would they do that? Uh, they would email New Brunswick Archaeology, all one word, at gmail.com. New Brunswick Archaeology, A-R-C-H-A-E-O-L-O-G-Y, at gmail.com. Fantastic. And uh, one of the reasons that a listener might want to use that email address is that, as you know, and as the listener will know, because they've, they've probably seen this um, as they as they upload this, hopefully pretty regularly on Apple Music or, or sorry, Apple Podcasts. Download, or, actually. They, download. Sorry, we, no, we, we upload. We upload. They download. Yeah. 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 I know, listener, it's hard to believe that we don't have this this APAV website back up yet. Um, <laughs> but uh, no, we're uploading, we're downloading, we're midloading, we're synergizing. We are upstream and downstream of of Internet efficiencies right now. Um, but uh, but wherever you get your podcasts, wherever you hear us, um, one of the things that that uh, that Ken and I would 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 ask you to do, <clears throat> if you don't mind, is uh, consider leaving us a review. Uh, especially if you like the podcast. If you don't like the podcast, maybe don't leave a review. Um, but uh, but if you do, we really appreciate that. Uh, we're, we're trying to uh, to grow our listenership, and and those those five star reviews on on things like Apple Podcast, uh, I think help do that. I'm not really sure if they do, but in theory, they do. And uh, and I read on Reddit podcast, and I'm supposed to ask you to do that. So that's what I'm doing right now. Yeah, that is but one what, thing that 
that you do hear on a lot of podcasts that we haven't been doing. It's like, you know, the smash the like button thing for, uh, for YouTube. Um, Absolutely. But uh, you can um, tap gently on, on, and the haptics on your listening device will, will gladly respond to a five-star review. Absolutely. And, and it, uh, and, and it made Ken and I pretty happy. Uh, we, we watched the metrics on this thing a lot closer than either of us would, would like to um, admit but one of the things that we uh, we you might use that uh, email address that we just gave you for is that you've noticed when you are leaving that five star review that we're still called the New Brunswick Archaeology Podcast, which is not the most exciting name in the world. So one of the things that you, yes, you, dear listener, might want to do is send in a uh, a new name, a name a little more pizzazz, a name that Ken and I think would would really help to grow this podcast, the kind of name that when a listener is scrolling through their favorite podcast server, a future listener scrolling through their favorite podcast server, they see that and they say, wow, I would love to listen to that. I would love to get Ken and Gabe up over 2,000 listens, get that uh, regular first day listens up over 50, all of those things, get Ken and Gabe um, you know, really heard across this nation, other nations, whatever nation uh, could use more New Brunswick Archaeology Podcast or whatever it's going to be called. And so we have a very exciting five-star prize read for you um, tonight. And so, Ken, uh, have you spent much time in the American South? Uh, almost none, other than other than Florida, which I don't think really counts as the American South. Oh, no, I, I, that, that's, bar- that's, that's barely, barely culturally the American South. But um, as you know, like the, the great Jesse Winchester once said, I like to live with my feet in Dixie, but my head in the cool, cool north. So... This prize read is really gonna uh, is gonna be pretty exciting because what we're offering today, uh, and this this is gonna connect actually to a hit piece later in the show, is Ken, uh, uh, have you ever seen uh, these things are called party bikes? Oh yeah, I have. So so uh, so what we're gonna offer is an historic party bike tour and pub crawl of Fredericton's historic district. Oh, so a party bike is a multi passenger bike, and it's got two rows of passengers. If the listener hasn't seen one of these. Uh, you get two rows of passengers facing each other across a bar, and the and the and the passengers are are pedaling, and then there's a driver in front who handles the steering, and then in the back is where we keep the bar and the humidor. And so you may be thinking this is a pedicab on steroids, but that's not quite true because the driver is only going to be handling the steering and the braking, not the pedaling. You handle the pedaling, uh, and so so in places like Savannah, Georgia, this is very popular, you know, with the stagette crowd because you can ride around singing "Girls Just Want to Have Fun" and drinking gigantic margaritas while you uh, while you see some beautiful sights, while you hang out with your friends, and uh, in this case, while Ken and I take you on an historic—that's right—an historic tour of downtown Fredericton. So what we've got this fortnight is a special party bike tour of Fredericton's historic sites in a gently used—that's a story for another podcast—Pellcraft <laughs> party bike. Uh, they're made in Alberta, Ken. Um, did you know well, that pedal craft party not. bikes? That's right. Yep, near you. Um, and this has got many features. They include handrails, cup holders, a stereo that's compatible with USB, Bluetooth, Sirius XM, and best of all, one of the, this thing's got the the places to plug in here. There's just simply no dongle required. It's got basically USB A through Z. It's got HDMI. You could, you could probably plug a microphone in there too. Absolutely. And in fact, we are going to be casting live while we while oh. we take people on this on this tour. Um, and, and all of those, those sound features, which play the bumping tunes in between the historic stops are going to be going into a total of 360 watts of ELAC speakers through pure Terra Labs, Omega evolution, SP cable. This stuff looks like you're <laughs> plugging an eel 
into your system. That's how strong this cable is. And did I mention no dongles? This baby's got any port you could possibly want. No need to ice your dongle while you're on this, uh, on this tour. And of course, it's going to be fully equipped with a number of standard safety features, including LED lights that pulse the music. So when you get that boom, 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 oh, good. you get the pulsing yeah. LED lights, increases the safety dramatically as well. A steel grab bar, uh, hydraulic disc brakes, that's front and rear. I could really go on and on. It's that good. But naturally, the bar is also going to be fully stocked with some of the finest local tipples that New Brunswick Liquor can often offer. And on the party bike, we're going to need you to have at least five friends. That's the minimum to keep the bike moving. Um, but we can have up to 15 people. Um, if you have fewer than five friends, reach out to Ken and I about the pedicab options. Um, and we're going to start at the Gothic Christchurch Cathedral. It's got a 4.7 on Yelp. It probably lost a few points for being intoxicated by the spirit of the age. Um, but you can too on this trip. And then swing by some of the key historic homes of Fredericton. The Crockett House, that's a beautiful Queen Anne home. The Carriage House Inn, that's sort of in a Second Empire style. The Smith House, that's Loyalist Vernacular. And then the Allen House, that's in the Georgian style. We've got many, many more uh, folks. Downtown Fredericton in what may soon be its new historic district really has something for every architectural taste. And all the while, your host, that's me and Ken, will be up front pointing out the sites and sharing some of our favorite pairings. I don't know about you, Ken, but I've always found the old-fashioned to feel so very Anglican Gothic, haven't you? And we'll wrap this all up uh, at about 2 in the morning with a couple slices of pizza at Jack's and a quick spin around the tannery pumping your favorite beats. Before we drop you off at whatever doorstep you'd like, provided it's downtown, we are not going to pedal you up the hill, uh, but we will dump you uh, anywhere, anywhere on the town plat. So, listener, uh, if you've got tonight's uh, winning entry for the new name for this podcast, Ken, where would they send that? New Brunswick Archaeology at gmail.com. That's right. So, uh, the we, we're looking forward to hopefully uh, seeing you on one of these Pedalcraft party bikes. Yeah, that's uh, that sounds like a lovely prize. And I'm guessing that that is not the uh, spring submersible version uh, in the in the downtown plat uh, during the spring freshet. I'm guessing this is a summer excursion. This is a summer excursion. Uh, the uh, being submersed in the Wollastook uh, in the spring, uh, it, probably even in the summer is a, is a frigid experience, I imagine. Uh, in the summer, it probably gets quite warm in some spots. But uh, but uh, yeah, navigating those. Uh, those flooded streets in the springtime, probably not the best idea at 2 a.m. Probably not. We'll think about maybe we could get um, get uh, tandem uh, kayaks for that or something. Oh, yeah, that might be another another uh, uh, marquee prize, uh, prize yeah, trip. That might be quite nice. Yes, I, I see that in the in the notes. And so uh, and so this was this was my erratum. My second erratum here is that my chair is just uh, slightly malfunctioned. Yeah, lowered uh, Gabe me much right now than the, I meant to. The listener can't see this, but uh, but Gabe has almost gone out of the picture at one point and then has <laughs> bounced back up and uh, is frantically working his microphone. So I, I might read this erratum for him while he gets. Uh, no, no, gets I'm, I'm back. I, back. I'm, I'm going right, to okay. I need to own this one, Ken. This this was my fault. Um, OK. Which, which was uh, at the beginning of the last episode, I said that the late woodland began 13,000 years ago. That's actually wrong. It should have been about 1,300 years ago. But if the listener thought that was a big error when we were dealing in hundreds of years, just wait, because, folks, we're getting into the protohistoric period where we can be wrong at a scale of an exact date. 
So buckle up, guys, because it's going to be... We're, we're throwing out real calendar dates here. <laughs> oh, my um, goodness. Yes, and, we are. And before we, get, before we get too much into the show here, we do have... We got a, a smaller list of listener mail this week, and I wanted to read this one um, uh, from Katrina. Uh, and she says, hey, fellas, sewing late tonight, listening in. Um, so Katrina shared that she, she likes to sew dresses while she listens to the podcast. Oh, Possible lovely. new name for the show. The Shovel Bum's Guide to Archaeological Prehistory in the Northeast, Northeast, dot, 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 and beyond. Now, where's my spa day, she asks. Uh, After the last (laughs) episode, It's Too Late, it reminded me of a TikTok that talked a little bit about farming. I've included included it in the link, and I think I shared this link with you. Um, You can watch the whole video, which is short of three minutes and pretty interesting. But what I wanted to discuss starts around 24 seconds. What I'm wondering is, could the local indigenous population at the time use the same methods as the Southwest by using topography to nourish the soils, by planting in watersheds? Uh, The soil nutrients would get replenished yearly by runoff carried down from higher elevations, food for thought, and little corn thingy. Uh, She also put her Twitter handle on there. It's at not a a AU digger. So you spell uh, that for the N-O-T-A-A-U-D-I-G-G-E-R. Okay. Uh, not an awe digger. I think I, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that properly, sure but yeah, but, Great. uh, but yeah, uh, I don't post much though. She says, but, uh, uh, uh Katrina is we. a, uh, is a, uh, uh, a craftswoman, uh, making dresses. And, and so the TikTok video that she's talking about, um, basically is talking about, uh, uh, Southwest groups essentially taking advantage of sort of natural, uh, soil replenishment and and to answer the question yes i mean like that I, that is was a common strategy basically the spring fresh it would bring in kind of uh that's sort of what made the alluvial uh and intervale lands all along the lower reaches of the wallastog for example so rich is that the um, a- annual spring fresh it brought in all sorts of kind of uh, uh recharge with soil uh, retra- recharge the soil nutrients and that sort of thing um and certainly uh i think that probably because there was not we don't have a whole lot of great evidence of substantial farming going on um, in uh, in the Maritimes prior to European contact, um, but uh, uh, certainly sort of the ad hoc um, crop yields would be ben- would benefit from sort of this annual natural cycle, basically. So I don't think there was a whole lot of intentional um, recharging, but it was probably selecting certain points that that were naturally getting flooded and that sort of thing. Would that be your sense? I think so. And one of the things that we talked about uh, last week with these corn heat units that uh, Kevin Leonard used to kind of measure places where you could have grown corn is that they tended to be clustered around rivers that basically functioned as these kind of heat sinks to give you a few extra, yeah. few yeah, extra days and, of growing. Yeah. And, and, and the, so the Grand Lake uh, in New Brunswick actually. Um, so the reason the Grand Lake Meadows is sort of this unique uh, biotic and ecological community is that the Grand Lake and French Maquapet and Washtenaw Lake sort of act as massive heat sinks because the size of the the um, the water bodies basically in those areas. And so uh, I had a friend of mine uh, said who who's interested in growing hops actually, um, and apparently it's a very good area to grow hops in because they require a lot oh, really? of heat and humidity, and uh-huh. uh, and it's referred to by some people as like New Brunswick's banana belt um, because it is such it's such a warm area. Like it's, it's, it's got more days of heat and higher humidity and basically better growing conditions overall in that sort of Grand oh, Lake meadows in that particular area. Um, well, that's cool. Yeah. Neat. Yeah. I think that might actually be even be visible on one of those maps in, in Leonard's paper. 
sort yeah, of yeah, the one visualizing that in my head. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, cool. So, but uh, I hope well, that answers thank your you, question, Katrina. Katrina. Thank you for writing in, and and listener, we love getting your mail. Um, and so if you're considering even asking a question, we are happy to answer questions on the air. And uh, um, I will, like I said, do try to do better about uh, emailing you back. Um, and uh, so I've got a few emails to catch up on here and probably some stickers to send out here soon. I think we do. Yeah. And, and yeah, and we, and we do appreciate listener. If you, uh, if, if you let us know, if you, uh, when you write in, if you, if you want a sticker, uh, it's helpful to have an address to send the stickers to. Um, and I think we're, we're pretty slow about getting them out, but we can consistently, you know, anywhere in the United States of North America or the United States or Canada, we can pretty much get you a sticker reasonably expeditiously i think <laughs> yeah um and ken were we were also going to ask i'm just curious we we're going to uh, think about asking the listener we're sort of starting to think about our second season and so one of the things that we wouldn't mind uh getting email about is things that you would be interested in in hearing episodes about yeah and also if you as we get as we approach actually the end of our first season which is sort of a uh kind of a neat uh we've got a you know a real bells and whistles cliffhanging uh season finale i think lined up for you um you know uh, uh but uh Dun -dun. if you if there <laughs> i may be setting up too much here uh well, notice listener we're not telling you what it is so yeah. i mean this, this this first season may drag on for uh you know three or four more years yeah um but if you yeah, had, just like uh, last episode <laughs> Yeah, exactly. If you if you had a topic that we uh, maybe glanced over, um, perhaps kind of uh, we hummed and hawed over particular topics, and you actually are interested in hearing a little bit more about it, um, happy to hear about that, and we're we're more than pleased to kind of revisit something and elaborate on it. There's um, as as you probably picked up, we can talk for a long time about particular things, um, but we're trying to glance a whole bunch we're trying to cover a whole lot, lot of stuff here and we're we're happy to narrow in on things that's actually much more fun than than a glancing blow that we sometimes get here it is and and, and crucially it requires fewer notes which is really something ken and i that are is very good for that yeah. they, the homework on this has just been it's been a lot you know the uh, all of a sudden you've yeah. got a game sabbatical know, project is about to become uh something he's got to manage while he's teaching so yeah exactly i'm not going to be on sabbatical anymore and so uh so what I'm going to do is just plug this mic in during the during the class and see what happens. Yeah. Uh, no, I'm not going to do that. Um, but what we're what we're going to talk about this uh, this episode, uh, listeners, is the period beginning about 500 uh, years ago or so, and that's the Proto-Historic period, and that's what archaeologists use to refer to early European contact. And so, you know, already there's there's kind of a a problem here with the terminology, which is that the word historic means a bunch of different things and so i think we talked very early on in this season that sometimes archaeologists use the word prehistoric to refer to before written records and that's why we call archaeology after european contact historical archaeology because it's accompanied by texts yeah uh in contrast um many indigenous people quite appropriately felt like that phrase prehistoric was sort of inappropriate, right? Because it implies being outside of a different use of the word history, right? That history uh, implies this sense of having a past, right? A past that you're engaged with, that you're actively uh, creating, that you're drawing on to define yourself. So the way the term protostork comes into being is an artifact of all that, where basically there's this period 
um, surrounding early European indigenous interactions where there are some written records. They're mostly kind of incidental or, you know, things that involve something like a shipping record or uh, a missionary report, these kinds of things. There are some things that are much more ethnographic than that, but, but not a lot. And indigenous people mostly are not leaving their own written records. Does that fit with your understanding of, of what we made this term, Ken? Yeah, yeah. And, and uh, I, I, I've had some people tell me that proto-contact is sometimes a preferred terminology. So, you know, you're in a period where you're sort of, you know, if you're talking sort of about pre, pre and post-contact, um, you know, realistically, as we talked about last episode, you're kind of actually at any time after 1000 AD, you're in that proto-contact period, right? Mm -hmm. and, and certainly, um, you know, we are well aware of um, um, sort of this period beginning sometime, you know, as early as probably around 1500 years ago. Um, but, uh, but, uh, you know, we, we, we can speculate that there might have been other people kind of ad hoc visits basically sometime between 1000 and 1500. Would that be maybe oh, I think stretching so. and, too and, far? And I assume in, in after processing here, since you've, you've mentioned the Norse and this implication of sneaky early Basque contacts that we're going to insert some sort of conspiratorial uh, conspiratorial music that I'm going to say, we're just asking questions. <laughs> the, uh, what steel, what, what temperature Do does steel milk research. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> the, um, but yeah, no, I, I think that fits. I mean, and I, and I think this, uh, this one of the things that, that, that we're grappling with and we're, we're trying to think about this is this tension where we're trying to convey the agency of indigenous people in negotiating what happens, right? Which is that Europeans show up. It's not a sort of bulldozer, right? That's not how this worked. It's negotiated on indigenous terms, but at the same token, it's still bad, right? It's still awful uh, what happens. And at the same time, we don't want to automatically prioritize particular kinds of histories. And so the, the whole, thing is is a bit of a, a terminological mess um and it's a, a bit difficult to know how to approach and and so i mean even with the the term contact which you mentioned steve solomon's talked about this i uh, he wrote this paper in american antiquity we'll include it in the show notes um that there can be some problems with that term and and the analogy that he used in that article which i think is kind of good he says that contact makes it seem like the colonial experience is like is like a pool ball right that it's the that colonialism is is the is the the cue ball, and it's just hit into things, which immediately bounce away, right? Rather than there actually being in interaction among the cue ball, you know, and the yeah, the, the ball there has to be this into. driving force that's creating this contact, as opposed to sort of two opposing forces. Yeah, is that kind of what you're getting at, yeah, yeah. And, and it's not as if the one ball hits the other ball and it just skews away somewhere else. It, there's um there's time during which those two interactions are negotiated on both sides yeah and and as we'll um, talk about here too there's sort of um there are contacts that were happening before contact basically and that you know what we'll we'll talk about here you know wabanaki becoming aware of europeans likely uh before even seeing them or interacting with them yeah there's there's the thing i think it must be in a maybe it's in bruce bruce Bork's article or somebody else's article about this where the um you know supposedly uncontacted Wabanaki people show up speaking English and wearing European pants and in a shallop 
I think this is the... yeah, and it's they're yeah. they're speaking some kind of like uh, pigeon Portuguese. I think is how he describes it. It's that Bork and Whitehead paper. That's right. Um, yeah, the, the Tarantines paper. Uh, yet, yes. so that they they've learned essential like trade words in Portuguese um, for particular items. Was my under- if my recollection is correct. That that fits with my recollection as well. Yeah, um, and so so do you like this listener we've, we've gone from the theoretical to the specific again but we promise we promise this episode <laughs> we're not going to go two and a half hours japan is not going to be involved <laughs> be... matters of scale <laughs> matters of scale exactly um but one way to think about this uh period might be so uh eric wolf talked about he wrote this book uh europe and the people without history and it was a it's a good book, but in many ways, it's about this uh, perception, I think, that European scholars have of there being this, you know, unconquered, unknown place, right? <laughs> this ahistorical yeah. place in which which people that had history encountered. And Wolf then really argued that what you think about this instead as is this collision of histories, right? That each group, indigenous people as well as Europeans, are interpreting the interactions that happen on uh, on their own terms. And, and one of the moments I actually kind of thought-provoking moment I had uh, about this was uh, Mallory Moran, who's now the, I'm not going to get her exact position. She's right, the she's like archaeologist, the, the HR3 at Fortress HR3. Louisburg. Yeah. Cool. So and she's, what is she's an basically, HR3? she's a, um, we don't have, so in Parks Canada, they don't, so she's archaeologist three, essentially. So she's like a, essentially okay. the equivalent of like a senior archaeologist for Fortress Louisburg. Right. Yeah. So she's yeah. the the head honcho, National archaeologically Historic speaking, up there. And um, and she did, I'm not sure if it was a, it was, we'll call it a proto-doc. I'm not sure if it was a, a, a pre-doc or a post-doc, <laughs> but around the time she was finishing her doctorate, um, she was here and she pointed out that she was reading some research and and and, and she said, you know, why do you think it is that um, that uh, Europeans traded beads with indigenous people early on? I said, oh, never really thought about that. And but apparently this had been um, a, a kind of approach. These were known to be good trade goods in other places that Europeans had colonized. And so even that sort of act of, of exchanging beads had been this was a sort of strategy that had been honed elsewhere. In, in as part of the oh. colonial program like i so i know i know from the great lakes for example like they very early on figured out that indigenous groups would trade more regularly for particular like colors and like classes of beads and so those were like the you know you find more red beads and white beads and that kind of thing and and uh but i didn't realize that this is one of these things that was sort of uh was grafted onto a new colonial system basically yeah, and it was apparently even in, in places like you know Africa, the uh, trading beads, you know, which makes some sense too. They're they're small, they're kind of easy to lug around, they're yeah. cool, this kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and but it was just kind of one of these moments. I never really thought about it, right? It was kind of one of these moments that oh, that's that's interesting, right? It, but it is one of those kind of collision of histories yeah. moments. Um, and it, and um and like uh, uh Graper and Wingro kind of talk about yeah. this from another perspective too, where they're talking about how um you know, we, we, a lot of like sort of Western philosophical thought about, um, uh, you know, sort of the origins of inequality comes from this um, Europeanized sort of uh, Rousseau and, and, um, uh, and, and Locke or Hobbes, sorry, Hobbes and Locke and Rousseau uh, perspective when 
uh, they kind of reposition it to th be thinking about how the ways that these early European contacts, um, how the, the, the folks that kind of influenced the French, uh, the Enlightenment thinkers were actually drawing on conversations and philosophical um, sort of pronouncements from indigenous people in in the quote unquote new world, basically, right? Mm -hmm. And and we're being inspired by the way that indigenous sort of philosophical and ontological ways of being and acting and and knowing and and sort of like their observations on European culture um, and sort of their critiques of the way that uh, you know the Europeans sort of comported themselves influenced the way people uh, influenced what became to be thought of as as sort of westernized thought. Yeah, uh, I'm I'm totally drawing a blank on the Iroquoian guy. They, they what was uh, his name that they mentioned? Catarandoc? Is that Catarandoc? Um, yeah, it's, it's something like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I also, of course, am drawing a blank. This is the David Graver and David Wengro recent book, The Dawn of Everything. I think it's Dawn of called. Everything. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which which is great. I'll put in the show notes. Um, yep. They, I'm working uh, my way through it here. That's my summer read. So. It's not a short one. It's it uh, is not. It's, <laughs> it's uh, not. But it's it's, it's uh, a really it's, good read. But it, it it's pretty dense, right? Like you know, it's yeah. Uh, yeah. It's it, not um, my it's not my usual pop sci fi uh, read. So yeah, no, the I suppose not. But I I recommend it too. I think the listener yeah. like it's also sort of interesting. Um, we're gonna we're we're just gonna get totally sidetracked maybe here talking about Graber and Wengrove, but the um, but it's a collaboration between the late David Graber, who at least for my money is maybe the most interesting cultural anthropologist working in the last, I don't know, 20 or 30 years, sort of a protege of Marshall Solon's who worked on a, a number of interesting topics ranging from debt to um, the state of employment um, to uh, he actually, his early work was on, um, uh, was in Madagascar, so kind of a generalist, and then and then Wengro, who's uh, also kind of a generalist, but but works on uh, old world archaeology. And my understanding is they were just sort of teaching together and said, "Hey, let's write a book that, uh, rather than being, it's sort of the antidote to Jared Diamond, right? It's kind of the anti yeah, yeah. Jared Diamond deal, uh, you know, Euro Eurocentric. Uh, here's a big narrative of why yeah. the world is how it is." Yeah, and that the environment, the environmentally deterministic models. So, right. Yeah. 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 Uh, although I, I confess, I tend to have a lot of sympathy for uh, anyone who who writes these. I, I find it a little annoying that uh, many of my colleagues will will say, "We we really just need to write more for the public." And then when someone actually does it, they say, "Can you believe what an ignorant, simplistic?" racist <laughs> overbearing dripping in condescension uh from all of them about these things that heaven for fans someone would try to write a book that was uh not just interesting but popular <laughs> about yeah. what they worked on the the carolyn always makes fun of me because when people are asking for sort of like a general approach to archaeology book i always suggest yeah. 1491 yeah it's uh, great it's a great book, but she always kind of like makes fun of me. She's like, that's like the only book that you suggest to people when it comes to, I was like, well, there's, there's not a whole, there's not many of them that like kind of appeal to a lot of crowds. And, and it's got some great main content too, because uh, it does. It's Jim good. Peterson makes several appearances throughout it. Yeah, I think so. And yeah, uh, yeah no, so, so anyway, but the, and it's going to be extremely hard to do to write a, a popular book. Yeah. So, so we haven't talked about Japan, but we're going to talk about Rome. We we sure are. <laughs> <laughs> 
there was that. So there, what's going on was, in Europe, Gabe? They well, I'm, I, I'm told uh, that during the middle to late maritime woodland period uh, in in Europe, there was uh, it was out of the console into the sack. It was uh, the collapse of the Roman Empire. <laughs> that's, and, a, that's a good one. <laughs> the the uh, I hope you like that, Dave. That's for you. Uh, <laughs> and so and so, but as a result, basically of of the Roman Empire blowing up, you get all these these basically smaller political polities jockeying for uh, for power. And so, you know, as a result, this encourages people to basically look outward, Europeans to look outward, to try to build their power in this new power vacuum. Uh, does that fit more or less with your uh, understanding of, of what's going on? Ken? That's, uh, that's about the extent of what I remember from uh, my history classes in my first couple years of university. Yep. Yeah. The, uh, my, my, my brother's a, a medievalist. And, and when, when Matt and I did the, the protostoric chapter for the, uh, for the book that he and I did, I sent Toby the chapter and I, I, I said, could you please read this and just highlight anything that's going to be humiliating, <laughs> which I appreciate it. So thanks, Tobes. And uh, <laughs> the, the uh, and uh, so there's some other things that are going on though, right? Which is the it's little cold. ice age. It's getting cold, getting very cold. Um, there's a good book about this actually called a uh, a cold welcome by I'm gonna put oh, this in the yeah. show notes as well. Do you have you looked at that book? So I I flipped I have it on my shelf actually. I got it out of the library and I read you know the first kind of thirty pages of it uh, and then you know life happened and and yeah. uh, it's it's one of these ones I'm gonna get back to this summer because I'm gonna be teaching a lot about this stuff here in in you know about six months. So yeah, uh, Sam uh, by Sam White. It's uh, it's terrific. I think there was this this kind of period of trying to kind of describe it, a sort of uh, interest in environmental history among historians that also had to do with this period of early contact. There was a lot of interesting stuff. We've talked about some of this about uh, you know. Jason Hall is one of these uh, would Jason kind of Hall. come from this sort of. Uh, so um, he's the ethno historian for Wolaskiwe Nation, uh, a colleague of both of ours to a certain extent, and and. Uh, um, you know, is is an environmental historian and has looked at Wastigwe, um sort of response to some of these climatic events and uh, in the in the post contact period. Yeah, I mean, we might as well even just just sort of mention. I mean, Hall's thesis, as I understand it, is that he thinks there was kind of casual uh, horticulture among indigenous people, much like we sort of talked about last week, and this was then reeled back during the little ice age because it got so cold is that your understanding of his work as well uh yeah and and uh i don't think i i don't think i've re read it as closely as you have i think you were on his committee were you not no 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 i was not no he uh, oh, done before okay. me i think yeah okay um i'm not um, sure i've met jason hall actually but i've i've read his stuff okay yeah um yeah yeah so th this had sort of profound effects on Europe, but also on uh, in the Maritimes, and in particular in and in, uh, in New Brunswick. And um, I forgot to jot down what we're talking about for date ranges here, but it, it sort of extends right into the nineteenth century, does it not? Yeah, I mean this is this is why um, this is why people think about uh, Christmas in England being snowy. I think right is because when <laughs> Charles Dickens is writing a Christmas Carol, it's still the winters are still bad there because of the Little Ice Age. 
Yeah, yeah. And um, people really were working walking uphill both directions in the in the blowing snow. They were. And and there's that uh Kermit the Frog is slaving away in uh under Mr. Dick or under uh Mr. Scrooge's oh, employment. My uh my my probably my favorite Christmas movie, actually, Muppet's Christmas Carol. The best one, really. I mean, it's it's pretty much that uh and uh three three nights of the condor are the only the only ones worth watching, as far as I'm not, concerned. Not familiar with that one. I, I, I'm it's, a big fan of Elf. Would be the other one that uh, I have I to suppose. watch every year. Yeah, Three Days of the Condor is the antidote to. Well, I mean, I, I, I do like the the Bruce Willis uh, Die Hard one. Oh yeah, Die Hard movies are are uh, are Christmas classics. By yeah, but yeah. if you like those, you'd you'd really like Three Days of the Condor. It's a it's a spy movie that just happens to take place at Christmas, and the premise is that this low grade. Um, we're not quite to Japan, but we're getting closer. Listening, this 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 <laughs> low ranking, um, low ranking CIA guy who reads books to try to discuss to try to identify um, secrets that may have been encoded in these basically paperback novels from places like Russia and so forth. It's played with Robert Redford. It's it's a oh, novel it? too. I read. Yeah, yeah, I read the novel last uh, last Christmas actually too, and um and uh, and the premise is that his CIA station gets hit and because he's out for lunch uh and has snuck out to the back door he's not supposed to use to get lunch because it's raining he doesn't get hit and uh ends up uh his code name is condor and he ends up running around dc trying to uh not get killed and it's christmas huh. time there you go it's it's very good uh, the novel is also uh very good and, and kind of a fun christmas read um but it is no muppet christmas carol um so, so when uh, when Europeans show up, uh, there's Columbus in the Caribbean, and yeah, then who, by all accounts, is not uh, is not a nice person. No, he is not, and um, I don't think I don't think most of these guys are. Yeah, they all seem to be real scumbags. I mean, Cabot, who we're about to talk about, when I was reading about Cabot, we don't know very much about him except that he had serious financial troubles and he sold a slave in Crete at one point. And then when he got here, started kidnapping Baotic people. Yeah. This is a man who's, who's Italian by birth uh, and sailed under a and British flag with a British name, which kind of might give you a hint of like yeah. <laughs> how he was doing in the 15th century. Yeah. He, th this was probably a man that, that had some, uh, some tattoos he regretted, you know, that kind of, a, <laughs> kind of a fellow I suspect yeah. on his lower uh, back. So yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. exactly. And so, um, but but I think one of the things that people sometimes forget is you know Cabot's like pretty much right after Columbus. You know, Columbus forty ninety two, Cabot fourteen ninety seven from Bristol, yep. England. You know, either lands in Newfoundland, probably in Newfoundland, maybe in Cape Breton, with about uh, twenty guys on a ship called the Matthew, and as you said, uh, with a mandate from uh, King Henry. Um, well, and the listener will also probably be familiar with a uh, pretty famous uh, heritage moment. Uh, oh, which one's this? The Sire Till the End of Time. I know this one. You've never seen this? Oh, I show this to my students. This is this is uh, like this is like. Uh, so I think, listener, what you're going to experience here is a pause while Gabe actually takes an opportunity to watch this heritage moment while we're recording. I think we and, are. And. Uh, and uh, we're going to come back with Gabe's immediate post-heritage moment reaction. All right, sit tight, listener. This, this, the listener doesn't know, but, but uh, when, I, when I first moved to New Brunswick uh, for graduate school years ago, this happened a lot more 
uh, <laughs> the uh, all my friends would say, oh, you haven't heard that heritage moment? And they'd say, let's watch this. It's about Kevin? Oh, yeah. And and cod. Are they going to be able to walk to the, the shore on the backs of the cod? Oh, that is a lot of cod. <laughs> Whoa. No, Ken, this looks like overfishing to me. <laughs> is that a, a bin of limes? <laughs> you don't want scurvy. So so when when he says until the end of time, that's foreshadowing, I'm guessing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. By end of time, <laughs> they mean the, the mid 19, not the 1950s. Yeah, yeah. This will work until trawlers are invented. Listen. Yeah. Yeah. And the line oh, no, is I, for you know, pescado tacos, right? Well, absolutely. I, I if, if anyone knew about a pescado taco, I think it was probably Kevin. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. Uh, well, thank um, you. Yeah. So the listener, I don't think we're even gonna, I'm just gonna cut this in a way so that you can hear. Uh, Gabe's joyful reaction while, <laughs> while he's watching this live. But um, so, what's your what's your thoughts, Gabe? Is it, uh, uh, well, his... I, I, it's it's similar to other heritage minutes. It's a minute, um, and uh, it deals it, with heritage. It, it, it uh, glosses uh, over a whole lot of problems, yeah. but uh... <laughs> the uh, no, the it's it's no. Um, I think the first one you ever showed me. Uh, was the uh, the Halifax one where the guy goes acknowledge and acknowledge? And, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And and you were making that joke because you were calling someone. They were picking up, and I didn't get the joke. And you said, "Wait, have you never heard Heritage Minutes?" And yeah. so for the next, you know, I mean, this has been a what now uh, over a decades long process of kind of introducing me to Heritage Minutes. But no, yeah, I mean, I, it it does seem to gloss over some things. But I but one thing that I I think it does maybe emphasize is that um, there were a lot of cod. And, they and, say, uh, and that was really kind of the birth of sort of the um, what brought a lot of Europeans over. It wasn't just um, Italian English people. Um, it ended up being a whole group of. Um, uh, I, so correct me if I'm wrong. Are the Basque just Portuguese or were there Basque that were also French? I think there were Basque that were also French. OK, so so there were so Basque is. So I had always thought the Basque was referring to like the Portuguese fishers, but it's actually the, it's the group from a region, essentially, like sort of that Atlantic coast, coastal I region. I think so. Yeah, okay. The Basque it's, it's region, possible. Yeah, it's possible that we've just, uh, much like saying that these cod could feed us forever, that we've just foreshadowed at Hakuna Arata, but they, uh, <laughs> yeah, it could very well be. <laughs> but, a trawler uh, but in the six... just burned into our uh, email waiting for us to correct our, our detailed knowledge of whether or not, you know, what, who the Basque were. But in the 16th century, what we're seeing is a lot of people are are arriving in the region, are fishing caught off the coasts of particularly Newfoundland and Lab and, and Nova Scotia. Um, at the same time, um, you're probably so we've we've sort of s- skipped over kind of um, uh, much of the 1500s, but you're not having a whole lot of um, uh, European contact there. You have a lot going on in. Uh, for students of of North American archaeology, more generally, you have the um, uh, uh, the Entrada and um, the various sort of Spanish incursions into the southern part of uh, the Americas. So um, you've got uh, uh, like uh, Cortez and and those. Um, who, who's the other guy? I'm I'm blanking right now. Uh, it's, the, it's another C. Coronado. 
Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. Cortez and Coronado um, in sort of the southern states and, and in Mexico and, and other parts of the Caribbean as well. Yeah. Um, and, and so but part of the reason that not much is, is seemingly going on is that you basically what develops are these two theaters of interaction, right, where it's pretty much yeah. in the far northeast, Europeans are interacting with indigenous people. And then sort of from like the Caribbean to Florida. And in between that is sort of like Europeans bombing around to get between those two theaters once in a while and occasionally interacting with folks. Um, but but not a lot. Um, and one of the other things that's changing the or that's, I guess, affecting the nature of the interactions in the far northeast is that Europeans are pretty much coming here on kind of extractive missions, mostly in the summer. So they're they're on these fishing expeditions. There are actually kind of two kinds of fisheries. There's a, a wet fishery and a dry fishery. Uh, one involves so you've got to you've got to basically process this cod so it doesn't go bad. You know, salt it and dry it yep. and all that stuff. You got to do that on uh, on racks that are that are put on dry land, or you can just do it on the ship. And so the actual nature of these interactions are are sometimes pretty uh sporadic and so but and having eaten sushi in alberta i can tell you uh <laughs> how is the sushi in alberta ken uh it's best to get the cooked stuff i think is uh I, although there is a there's a spot in calgary that um is a uh, part of like a chain of really good sushi restaurants like there's one that we went to in toronto it's called kibo sushi um okay. and uh uh exceptionally good sushi there and i mean like realistically you're 12 hours from vancouver so you're actually you know sure. well within the ocean range um yeah but uh yeah but no i can i can understand your concern um and so the the actual archaeological record for these european interactions of the dry fishery will be you might have records of these stages where they're drying um and processing fish uh on land but you there wouldn't be a, a whole lot else in the in the kind of european archaeological record you do get things like um the Beothic are picking up european goods mostly that are left behind it seems like there's these kind of pretty um uh, this this kind of emphasis on not actually directly interacting so Beothic are coming and getting things or sometimes there's even these sort of indirect exchanges apparently where um even though the fur trade hadn't exploded yet you know, fishermen are interested in furs sometimes, and so they'll leave items for Beothic. Beothic will leave furs, and they, yeah. they won't actually interact person to person, but they'll they'll leave these things. Don Holly talks about this some in his book. It's yeah, this is and, and it's kind of this quirky like it's uh, um, you guys reference in the book as well, um, sort of talking about sort of stuff being maybe left on rocks, basically like you know yeah. I'm going to leave you stuff and then come back, you know maybe a few days or weeks later and, and pick up the stuff that was left for me kind of thing. Right. Yeah. 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 So this, this sort of exchange uh, develops. And, and um, in the, and in the 16th century too, you've got some early sort of written accounts of what's going on, uh, particularly as it relates to the Wabanaki. And so uh, Verrazano hits, is arrives in Casco Bay in 1524. And, and what is it that he sees there? What's he remark on that's sort of, uh, kind of critical for understanding um, indigenous relations and sort of the ways that we uh, we know that indigenous communities had had sort of continued to stay in very close contact and the way they sort of, I guess, communicated about 
what's going on, basically, you know, that there's, there's uh, uh, sort of an awareness uh, uh, among the folks living on the, on the shore side. Yeah, so this is super interesting. And one of the reasons I've been interested in this is that uh, Arthur Anderson, uh, colleague of ours, uh, teaches at the University of New England, which is plausibly <laughs> the University of New England in Biddeford is actually one of the places Verrazzano looks at, and he yeah. draws a map of it. Uh, sorry, Champlain later. Uh, yeah, I'm screwing this up. Sorry, Champlain uh, draws oh, yes. the map of it. Yeah. But Champlain is interested in this, knowing about Ferrazano's account. So, so this yeah. is kind of a hot spot on the on the archaeological landscape. And But what Ferrazano does is he sort of rolls in, and uh, floats in, I guess, sails in. <laughs> and, and for Ferrazano, things have been going pretty good in southern New England. He's had some pretty good interactions. Um, so that's a pretty good exchange. And he shows up uh, at, on the Saga River and notices that the people uh, there are much less uh, warm towards him. Uh, in fact, uh, it seems like they probably moon him um, in, in the account. <laughs> yeah, it's like there's a line, it's like all, all sorts of lewd gestures or something that's like the that, one. wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. that's the one. And, uh, and, but he also notes that there's uh, no, no corn um, and that these people are, are wearing fur. So, so we sort of immediately get that they're glossed as kind of hunter-gatherers. And then there's the interesting question, though, about why exactly are they hostile to Verrazzano? And I think that's an interesting question. And I wonder um, if some of this isn't that the hunter-gatherers past the Saka River are interacting more with um, folks in places like Newfoundland who have already had pretty bad interactions with Europeans, right? Yeah, and um, fairly sustained, it, too. Yeah, yeah, or at least, you know, frequent. Um, persistent, yeah, so. Persistent, yeah. And um, and it turns out this is, you know, probably appropriate concern. You know, Verrazzano then immediately basically starts going raiding, uh, you know, inland, right? So it's, it, 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 it's probably the correct response to not be super enthusiastic about the guy. Um, yeah, but it is an interesting thing. And so so I think this this story kind of glosses a couple of things. One is that we we do see that difference between in, in early contact between the hunter gatherers in the Maritime Peninsula and horticulturalists, at least somewhat in New England. Um, and we do potentially start to get some hints of these, I guess we call them almost late little interaction spheres, right? That it's possible that the folks um that Verrazzano encounters uh, around the Saco River are uh, interacting more with with uh, northerly folks than with folks in southern New England. Yep. Yeah, and that's uh, this is sort of the, what we had talked about in the last episode that this sort of extensive network of of uh, uh, exchange and interaction that we're seeing in the late woodland and the Maritimes um, is persisting. You know, we're we're talking uh, twenty four years after where we cut off sort of the uh, the 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 late woodland but but um what you're seeing is the result of sort of these ongoing interactions and and this network that has been built up of communication and everything and so um uh, that persists into the post contact period and and that is a way that people are kind of getting a sense of what's going on um uh in 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 their neighborhood basically yeah i think so um and so we talked a little bit last episode about the apparent um so that that art piece for instance had talked about the possibility that there is a, uh, a late woodland fur trade that there seems to be some intensification of fur bearing 
uh, of the exploitation of fur-bearing animals by indigenous people. But 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 what in that the later fur trade may be mapped onto this, but what pretty much happens is this kind of school kid story, although I think there's some parts of it that are missing in the kind of typical understanding of this, which is basically that beaver hats get popular in Europe. Um, Ken's wearing one right now. Um, they're still popular in Alberta, <laughs> although it's a, it's a funny one. It's got a pretty large brim. Uh, and it, is that it's, it might be a white beaver hat he's wearing. It's, it's yeah, snakeskin, uh, snakeskin buckle too. Snakeskin to boots on my feet. You know, I've yeah, got a absolutely. belt buckle. It's making it unco- uncomfortable to sit down. Basically, it's so broad that uh, yeah. you know. The uh, yeah, the uh, I'm actually in, in my post post pandemic shape. I'm I'm actually not even able to wear a belt buckle like that. So good for you. Um, <laughs> and uh, and anyway, so beaver hats get popular in Europe. Why wouldn't they? And very promptly, beaver gets pushed to near extinction in Southern Europe. So what happens is the um, the basically be- exchange for furs extends both to Russia and to North America. Um, and in what I think is a kind of interesting just sort of anecdote about this uh, is that Laurier Turgeon, who's written a bunch of interesting stuff, so that I, I should interject here. The listener may have at this point gathered that Ken and I are not historians, um, <laughs> and you know, so so you think you think this week is rough. You just wait until next fortnight when we're talking about historical archaeology, and we can really screw up. Um, so so you know, I'm not out there mostly reading these kind of primary documents, um, and and I'm pretty much scanning the historical literature for exciting teaching anecdotes. Um, and and that's what we're going to be doing with you tonight. But but Laurie Terjan, who's an archaeologist and an ethnohistorian, he actually knows how to do both of those things, which seems impossible. Um, noted that one thing that happens is the Swedish military, um, you know, the uh, the uh, I, known I, for I, being aggressors. Yeah, ex- exactly. The um, the I didn't even know IKEA made battleships. Ken, I don't know about you, um, but I hope the directions were better. Uh, than the one anyway so the the swedish military rolls into this baltic port called narva in 1581 and it screws up the basically european exchange of furs and so people have to it, it amplifies even more the north american fur trade because of because of european geopolitical problems and the ikea uh the ikea problem yeah and, and, so, and the narva uh I recognize the name because of an incredibly <laughs> strange interaction I had a few years ago. Be with, careful, Ken. You might be a listener. With a with a Swedish graduate student, at least ostensibly, this was supposed to be a Swedish graduate student who is looking to do a cross cult, if I remember correctly, a cross-cultural comparison between the narv the late narva and the middle to late woodland transition or something like that. Was that that my is I was keeping you in the loop on this, so I think you probably know as much about it as I do. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Keeping in the loop is what uh, five years ago was called throwing under the bus in, in, in the common <laughs> parlance, I believe. But, um, uh, but, but no, that's um, what it was. It had to do with ceramics. There was some, there was a ceramics angle. Yeah, he had read he had read um, Kevin Leonard's dissertation, um, and then it increasingly became evident to me that I was writing his comps for him. <laughs> and that he was going to fail. <laughs> <laughs> but uh but that was my exposure to the Narva prior to uh 
prior to uh, uh, yours and, yeah. and Matt's, Matt's anecdote. So, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so, so this likely accelerates the fur trade um, because I'm, uh, you know, there, there's less access to these uh, Northern European beaver pelts, basically. Um, and so what had been sort of indirect trade um, and sort of ad hoc trade for some time um, becomes a little bit more organized uh, over the subsequent years. Yeah, I think um, that's true. So it probably shifts away from, from Europeans, basically or European fishermen kind of incidentally exchanging for furs once in a while. Yeah. Um, and, and there's, it, I, I've got a really great quote here from Cheyenne McDonald, who wrote a master's thesis in 1994. And, and cause one, some of the things we're going to talk about here are the ways that we understand um, pre-contact and post-contact um, exchange networks and how, um, how we, we envision the fur trade um, e either existing prior to the um, uh, European contact or uh, that it was sort of grafted onto an existing sort of exchange network that we're seeing coming out of the late woodland. Um, and, and so the quote is, what is needed to evaluate the hypothesis of an exchange network spanning the late maritime woodland and protohistoric periods is an undisturbed site or a series of undisturbed sites dating between 1,400 BP. In this hypothetical site or sites, the appearance of significant quantities of exotic lithic materials spanning the late prehistoric and protohistoric periods would support a connection between the late maritime woodland exchange and the early fur trade. And so that kind of gives you a sense of like where the baseline for what we're thinking about this is, is sort of that we, we see these exchange networks through the lithics and the late woodland um, and, and sort of this, you know, explosion of sort of activity going on in the late woodland. Um, and then we're starting to see um, sort of interesting proto-contact and proto-historic behaviors. Um, uh, and in particular, what sort of one of my favorite articles, actually, I, I, on the Maritimes that, that students seem to love to read too, actually, is uh, the Indigenous Middlemen, the Tarantines. So this is a Bork and Whitehead oh, yeah. article from yeah, 1981. Yeah. Um, and so... Uh, That's Bruce uh, Bork and uh, Ruth Humphrey Whitehead. Yeah, yeah. So, um, and what they talk about is that... Um, in the early fur trade days, essentially there were um, Mi'kmaq and some Wolastigwig, it sounds like, or, or Pescotomakati, it's, it's not clear, uh, Echemen, I guess, we'll, we'll, and we'll get to that here in a, in a bit, but um, who were essentially acting as middlemen or trade intermediaries uh, uh, between Europeans and uh, indigenous groups on the mainland, in that they were essentially intercepting um, European uh, boats in, in some cases in, uh, sort of facsimiles of European shallops. Uh, so these sort of like large shallow fishing boats that the, the Basque, uh, had used, um, or in some cases repurposed. So, uh, we talked earlier about, um, the, uh, uh, uh the Beothic, uh, sort of repurposing some of these left behind, um, uh, uh, European goods, and 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 in some cases, these Tarantines were were actually taking ships that Europeans had stashed uh, for the winter, uh, <laughs> and then essentially taking them and using them for their own purposes, which I think is just sort of amusing. Oh, yeah, basically, uh, like um, essentially like big canoes. Yeah, yeah, like so, big canoes so, under sail, essentially. Yeah, and um, and so they're operating in networks, um, uh, and. If I remember correctly, the article kind of focuses on sort of the outer Fundy Bay area, right? Um, yeah, I think the premise I, is basically that if you can control enough river 
drainages that you you could really kind of control a substantial enough part of the fur trade um yeah. to to make make economic sense and and was it Mike Deal and Dave Sanger am I remembering that correctly or Davis and Sanger I think Davis and Sanger who were yeah, yeah. sort of looking into the southwest of Nova Scotia and sort of looking at these trade networks that we're seeing Nova Scotia chert arrive in the Passamaquoddy Bay area as maybe kind of the uh, framework, sort of the late pre-contact framework for how this um, sort of nexus, uh, middleman nexus kind of set up. Am, am I remembering that correctly? Yeah, that's an article in the main bulletin, I believe. Yeah, we'll have to, Which... we'll have to check on that. I... That's going to be a deep cut. I, I I can't promise that for the show notes listening there, but I will do my 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 yeah. best uh, to get that in there. Um, yeah. It's called something something connections between Maine and Nova Scotia. Yeah, yeah, that's right. It's not five thousand years or something, is it? Five thousand years of connections. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 well, I, the, for me that's fifty thousand. I just I just play fast and lose <laughs> the zeros here, um, but. Uh, but yeah, no, so so and and I think one of the other things that it, it captures, and I think one of uh, Bruce's and and Whitehead's points in that article is that much of this fur trade is mediated in such a way. I mean, I think the the premise for that article coming into being was working Whitehead working to make sense of European counts of indigenous people. Who seemingly had never actually interacted directly with a European having European goods. Yeah. And it's basically that there are these complicated European indigenous uh, trade interactions that, that, that are not just direct between Europeans and indigenous people. And I mean, this fits, I mean, this is true in Southern New England, right? Where there are these interesting trade triangles evolve. Uh, Kim McBride wrote this paper, sourcing about the fur trade. Uh, which talks about wampum, you know, so so beads uh, drilled out of purple shell, um, and that this forms kind of interesting exchange triangles that involve wampum and furs, right, in in and yep. middlemen. Um, so there's there's all sorts of, and we should probably emphasize there's all sorts of, because one way to think about this, I think, would be to say what's happening. Um, yeah, I'm about to sound like a Marxist, I guess. Uh, or some kind of materialist or like some sort of 1980s cultural anthropologist is that the Wabanaki were being pulled into the world system um, to just go full Emmanuel Wallerstein and everyone. But it is sort of true though, right? That there's this, this world economic system. Um, now that just said it's conspiratorial. We're back to, we're back to, <laughs> to, to at what you sure that's not a world. world economic forum. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and uh where 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 there is this truly kind of global exchange that's happening, and now indigenous people here in North America were part of it. Um, so we've got these trade networks. Maybe they're operating, probably, or they're likely operating along similar trade networks to those that we were using shiny rocks of allegedly sourceable locales to uh, to track around the landscape. And this is somewhat, uh, and this, this actually, this fur trade kind of persists, I mean, in a lot of ways, right? It's actually sort of immortalized in this Ian Zello and Richardson National Film Board of Canada movie, Three Hunters of Mistassin. Have you ever seen that, Ken? Uh, I have. Actually, I think you and I watched together 
I think you you showed it to me way yeah. back in the day. Yeah, it's uh, it's terrific. This is also I, I can hear Wally, uh, one of our listeners, scratching in a new place on the bingo card. I took a lot of heat for talking about this a lot in, in class here at U of It's a great movie. Uh, it's available online. Um, but basically, you know, it, it persists, you know, into like Hudson Bay Company times um, in, in many ways, you know, is the kind of remnant of of this this fur trade yep. that, um, that which developed. is well, like, I mean, out here is well into the 19th century, right? Like, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, it's the great scenes of this movie. It's it's the in the 1970s where uh, basically the it's this. Cree family who who go out uh, to their hunting camp like they always do to get first with Hudson Bay Company. All sorts of interesting stuff in there, including about ontology and worldview and religion and attitudes towards animals. It's all very, very good. Um, so are we going to talk about ethnicity here for a minute now? Because we've, we've been talking generically about people exchanging, but we haven't really dealt with the idea uh, that this is sort of complicated to know what groups of people are interacting with what groups of people among indigenous people. Yeah. And, and we had talked about in the late Woodland episode about, um, or at least I think we did uh, about how it was a long episode. It's hard to know (laughs) (laughs) this notion of ethnicity and identity really sort of emerges in the late Woodland um, within the Wabanaki world where we, you know, we see patterning in the archeological record, which indicates that, you know, the Wabanaki had sort of a shared cultural, um, sphere, but that we, we increasingly saw them sort of eat within the uh, 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 Wabanaki identities emerging within the archaeological record, um, indicated by sort of patterning in artifact form, um, you know, subsistence practices, places where people were living and that kind of thing, um, such that they were sort of asserting these identities. And, and certainly within uh, this contact period, Europeans are encountering um, groups speaking different languages, um, who they I think are interpreting as broadly related um and and in some and later on you know politically aligned um and uh uh but are sort of assigning them names and categories which end up showing up throughout the ethnohistoric and ethnographic or uh, uh, ethnohistoric literature um uh, and so do you want to kind of run the list here oh yeah yeah that, so sure so the, but I think one thing we should say before we do that is that we're still talking about, um, in our view anyway, descendants from Paleo-Indians, right? We're still talking about the same people. What yep. we're doing is we're ascribing this process of ethnicity that other people who are descended from different people also have, right? Which is that you either you set yourself apart from other people, they set yourself apart. It's kind of a very basic thing that humans do, form these kinds of groups. But it seems like when we look at the ethnohistoric group, groups that are described we've got uh the amishqua and these are the folks that are growing crops somewhere near the Saco river um we've got the sorqua in maine and new brunswick who are probably what we would now call the mi'kmaq sometimes called the gaspesians or the miskatines we've got the etchemin who uh occupy the areas that we now think about as being passive or uh, Wolostogiak, and you've actually got divisions here uh, that I wasn't, uh, I don't recall. Yeah, so these were uh, in that uh, Prince article, uh, uh, Cornfields and Meductic. Yes. um, Brings up that the uh, Uruk-Stiguk nation, which is along the Wolostog, and the Echemeniak, or Echemenic nation, um, were at Penobscot. And so um, talking about probably sort of 
Wollastogwig and Pescotomacati groups on either side of what is now the international border, um, sort of in those traditional territories. Um, yeah. Um, and so, look, listener, Ken and I are going to give it to you straight. We understand the two and a half hours is pretty long. Uh, you know, we, we understand that, uh, that, that you don't necessarily want to hear uh, Ken and I talk about something we know less about than the late woodland fair you, you, i mean you know we were, we were wrong by a thousand years than we do a lot about uh in the last episode so so you know we could make this go until two three in the morning but instead what we're gonna do you ready for this ken you ready for this right line there is a vast literature about wabanaki ethnicity we encourage the listener to check it out that's what we're gonna yeah, do you good. like that yeah yeah, yeah. There's actually, the old, what is the article? And now we're going to uh, talk about it. <laughs> well, no, no. We, we, we can point them to a, an article that yeah, we'll yeah. put in the show so, notes. It's so uh, Etchemender Soriqua, a theoretical? No. <laughs> we should make everything I'm, end in a theoretical perspective. Uh, a theoretical so, problem? No, isn't so that so what the, what's, yeah, it's spec, anyway, isn't wait, it? So, so, yeah, so basically you've got spec's river drainage model, spec right. and snow, talking about the river drainage model. And then you've got Bruce Bork's critique of the river drainage model. So we yeah. can um, we can throw that in the show notes if the if the listener um, wants to deal with this. So um, similarly, it's not just ethnicities that hard ethnicity that's hard. It's hard to say even. Um, so Ken, you've probably had this experience where you're giving a, a public talk. Uh, you know, at some historical society or something, and um, and somebody says, and this is a question that makes a lot of sense. Um, how many indigenous people were here at when Europeans got here? Uh, which is a really interesting question, and it's really hard to answer. Um, so it's totally possible you and I are just in disagreement about this, but basically, my review of the literature to try to figure out what I think was going on at European context population-wise uses a kind of light combination of what we have for censuses. So there's some accounts potentially of the size of villages from Europeans and mix that with kind of basic uh, understandings about what is typically a low hunter-gatherer population density would be that probably if you combine uh the maritime peninsula and newfoundland that were in the tens rather than the hundreds of thousands probably in maybe the mid tens of thousands in this region um does that make sense to you so i will defer to your sort of review of this literature i i i will admit um i'm not all that familiar with population estimates the what i do know about it uh in the post-contact period is coming from your book um, I, I'll admit that that, like, they in my really mind, said it often. <laughs> yeah, uh, in my mind, that seems low, but yeah, uh, but it's it's, uh, you know, this it's a fraught issue. I mean, like, even pre-contact stuff when you're looking at archaeological sites and radiocarbon dates, like the stuff that we've talked about so far, um, these are really difficult numbers to, uh, it's it's impossible to quantify it. It's semi-quantitative at best, right? Like, and and yeah. uh, um, and, you know, I think that the, it's, it's a reasonable estimate. Um, it, I mean, it's a, it's a large geography for like it, it 
strikes me as seeming low considering the amount of interactions going on. But then, mm-hmm. you know, when you get down to, I, I, there's not a whole lot of way to measure these things. And so no, um, it's, it's reasonable. Um, but I, I think anybody that sees that number would kind of think, oh, that does seem kind of low, doesn't it? It does. I mean, I, you know, I, the, you know, I, so I, I admit, I, I see this number and I think it's kind of low. And then I think, well, New Brunswick right now has three quarters of a million people. That seems low, right? Yeah, that, that is a fair point, you know. Um, you know, I, you know, just amidst this massive explosion of population. So, so yeah, I don't know. I, I, the, I don't know. I mean, um, it's an interesting question. It, it would be interesting to get someone on who, I mean, I'm not even sure who this person would be. Dave McInnes is, is very careful to not deal in absolute population, deals in relative population because this <laughs> yeah. is so fraught, right? Yeah. And uh, that's a bad sign that that our, our ordinary uh, demography contact just isn't going to deal in units of people. He deals in units of relative people. <laughs> yeah. Um, Dean Snow worked on this a lot. Um, and, and Harold Prince talks about it. Um, and, and that's and then, the thing is lots of lots of very intelligent, dedicated people have worked on this stuff and have come to, you know, a range that is in essentially, you know, the the tens of thousands, right? Yeah. Um, Although the range among those estimates is pretty varied that different people have yeah, had. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so so anyway, so I mean, maybe we have a listener out there who's super into uh, population estimates. We'd love to hear about it. I mean, um, and if anybody's interested in it and thinking about it as a, as a potential pursuit, uh, uh, it would be a laudable task, but, uh, uh, would, would probably be fairly interesting and important work. Yeah. If, if you're uh, an undergraduate listening to this right now and you think, Oh, I'd really like to do, um, I'd like to figure this out. Um, I have heard about this great master's program at Lethbridge, uh, <laughs> where you can, where you can work with, uh, with a Dr. Ken Holyoke, but, uh, but no, see this Ken though. I mean, you've got a bunch of geographers out there. Um, Human geographers are interested in this kind of thing, right? Yeah, that's actually a good point. I should I should follow up with uh, Wei um, Wei Zhu, one of the guys I work with. I think this is kind of his in his wheelhouse. Um, sort of interesting. He's my to... office neighbor, so um, if uh, if he's in next time, I, I I'm bend an ear here of the human geographers and see what their thoughts are on how how would you approach this? Yeah, I mean. Geographers are not just good for um, for knowing all of the provincial and state capitals at Bar Trivia. They're also maybe good for solving some actual some actual problems. Yeah, they're also but, very good at, at craft beer select uh, selection. That's uh, that's one thing I've, I've enjoyed about the company that I keep now. <laughs> there you go. Um, so, but but and but part of the reason, right, that we have to be that it would be useful. You sort of. This is this is getting into like the really depressing part of the episode, right? Which is that this is not a particularly uplifting topic in general. I mean, it's, it's European content with just people, which is that so something happens in the 17th century, which is that basically voyages coming over to North America get slower. This maybe screws up a kind of quarantine effect that was occurring on vessels. And I admit, I didn't really understand this idea until the pandemic happened <laughs> and then it made a lot more sense that oh yeah having a, a long voyage at which everyone on it kind of sorted out their european diseases before they got to the new world could be a bit of a quarantine um so that's one possibility but there's also um less interaction in the kind of seasonal fisheries and there wasn't the fur trade whatever the cause anyway 
by the 17th century, there start to be uh, all sorts of catastrophic virgin soil epidemics that kill enormous numbers of indigenous people, you know, plausibly something like 90% um, of indigenous people. We don't exactly know the details of these diseases, although there's lots of work on it. Um, they're probably things like smallpox and influenza. Um, Artspiece and Brucepiece wrote an interesting paper um, saying that one of them might have been hepatitis. Um, there's also uh, discussion of uh, plagues, of bubonic plague, of yellow fever. Uh, but the, the effect, essentially, as I think the listener probably already knows, is just massive and disastrous um, death among indigenous people who had not developed immunity to these European diseases. Yeah. And, and, and something that persists into um, the late 17th and early 18th centuries as well, when, when we're, we're going to be talking here in the context of some sort of uh, conflicts, like violent conflicts that are going on, uh, sort of European wars arriving in the, um, uh, in the, on the shores of the Maritimes. Um, but uh, uh, Wolastogwig uh, and, and Mi'kmaq uh, who are, in these military conflicts with um, uh, with aligning with some European groups and other indigenous groups and that sort of thing, losing vast numbers to the point that they don't have, um, pe- they don't have personnel to contribute to some of these war efforts because uh, disease is still taking out some of their, you know, their best warriors as the, as the historical documents seem to indicate. Yeah. Um, and so at, at this point, we're looking at just this major shift um, in you know in the the makeup basically of North America and its also interactions. I mean, we we can sort of say that. I mean, I I think one of the ways that I've thought about it's interesting. You mentioned conflict, and I'm I'm skipping ahead here for a moment. But the um, what I've always thought maybe we actually Ken and I had this discussion when we the, the listener maybe may have gathered that that Ken and I plot these shows over about three text messages. During a point, we text message about a lot of things, but the actual show prep is uh, it's pretty minimal. Um, but we're just where do we end the proto historic period? And I tended to think about it as ending basically in the middle 1600s because in 1636 to 37, and so then we get the Pequot War. And what that does is it introduces basically European style war, you know, countering something called the skulking way of war, but sort of total war you know, the, the kind of annihilatory war um, to the Northeast, right? And, and it, you know, it, it's, it's really hard to see, to my mind, after the Pequot War, that imagining that there were going to be good European indigenous relations uh, moving, moving forward, you know, and then, you know, by 1675, you've got the King Philip or Mekong War breaking out. Um, and there's skirmishes, you know, all the way from New England up until up in, into Nova Scotia. Um, you know, later you get the King William's War. Uh, by 1727, in sort of dramatic fashion, the English destroy uh, Norwich Walk in uh, in what's now Madison, Maine. Um, so you you really can can kind of demarcate these series of disastrous events that that you know in some ways articulate, I think, with these early. Um, just disastrous virgin soil uh, pandemics. Yeah. Um, 
so Ken, uh, in contrast with last time, it's now uh, 12.30, and we haven't actually talked about archaeology yet. No, we haven't. Um, and and this is always the, this is kind of the hardest lecture to uh, teach, because you don't want to ever, you, you want to be able to leave off on something that is at least a little bit more positive. And so I think that the interesting thing is that although we are faced with um, diseases and warfare as sort of the the way that this sort of proto historic proto-contact period um how where we sort of leave off in terms of the timeline this chronology um what we're seeing archaeologically though are some really fascinating continuities and so there's this persistence of indigenous um lifeway and and the ways of doing things and uh technological persistence places where people are living um uh and ways that they're negotiating this new world basically right that the that things have changed dramatically um but there's but there remains a way to do things and so um you've done a lot of work on this uh in coastal maine um devil's head is really fascinating so why don't you talk a little bit about devil's head and then we'll get into some of the other kind of broader categories here because i think that sure, so devil's head actually we i introduced that quote because i think the devil's head actually sort of what Cheyenne McDonald was looking about, looking for. Yeah, I, I think so. I, I hope so. Anyway, I mean, and and uh, and so the Devil's Head site is well, the site I did my or one of the sites I did my dissertation on. Um, I was actually looking for a middle to late woodland transition site because uh, I was interested, you know, understandably. The the and, listener will know that looking for a particular class of site is a folly that many of us will fall victim to. Yes. Yeah, yeah, no, it it is, um, and uh, and and I ended up actually finding a late woodland to protohistoric site, which is kind of cool actually, because as as we're going to talk about, there are not that many, you know, and as Jenny McDonald said in that thesis, there are not that many um, protohistoric habitation sites, and so Devil's Head's uh, on the Saint Croix, it's uh, in. Callis, Maine. The listener will recognize that if they're a fan of the Trailer Park Boys. That's approximately where the Swayze Express goes. <laughs> uh, and uh, what's what's the great line uh, where the the Trailer Park Boys are at the uh, at customs in Callis, and it's what are you doing? It's just, oh, we're going to shop at the outlet malls. Yeah. Uh, but uh, anyway, so so those said it's it's uh, it's on the Saint Croix River. It's in Callis, um, and what basically happens is there it's got this subtle shift from the late woodland to the protohistoric period at this site uh, under good radiocarbon dating. And so the, what you get in the protohistoric period is you get in, sorry, I should say you get in the, the late maritime woodland period, you get a sort of normal, if you believe lithic sourcing, you get a sort of normal number of believe exotic listener belief with me. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um you get uh you get a lot you know compared to a typical middle woodland assemblage of exotic lithics lithics from away um ken thinks of these as erotic lithics they're lithics from away it's just as exciting um but during the protohistoric period you get even more so this you get what jennifer Tom suggested would happen you get this kind of increase in pre-existing exchange routes um, and I said the sourcing for that was done by uh, Chris Shaw, who now uh, is with the um, U.S. Forest National Service. Park Service, right? Uh, Forest Service. Forest Service. He's both a firefighter and an archaeologist, actually. Oh, that's fun. 
I, I, yeah, I, I, I for think some. Crystal, yeah, well, I think it's fun for Chris. I think he said he likes it more than his mother does. Um, I could see that. Yeah. Yeah. It's a combination CRM, uh, forest fire, forest fighter job, I believe. Um, between the late maritime woodland, uh, and the protostoric, the ceramics, you still get ceramics in the protostoric components, but they get really, really thin and kind of less, I'm going to say well-made, but I don't mean that as kind of a value judgment, just less kind of sturdy, you know, yep. more, seemingly more expedient. Um, and then maybe even more interesting, you get this kind of seasonal shift. So Jesse Webb did our fauna. And in the late maritime woodland period, um, the Devil's Head site is a winter occupation, probably. It's got moose, beaver. There's evidence for extracting bone grease and marrow, the kinds of things you do to get uh, fat uh, later on in the season. There's some pot polish on long bone ends. Just people are actually like kind of boiling bones in pots. And so as they're doing this, the bones rattle around in the pots and the edges get polished. Or by the protostoric period, you get large and small mammals. You get short-nosed sturgeon and alewives. All of that suggests a kind of warm season occupation. At that same time, what you get is people subtly, and this is actually why we're sort of able to identify this clearly in the archaeological record, is people shifted where they were camping very slightly. So they actually shift um, their wigwams and their shell heaps somewhat um, by, a, by a matter of meters, right? Um, that's a, that's a, a meter is worth 36 yards for the American listener. And, um, and by, by a matter of meters. And, you know, and, and I've got no evidence for this, but to what seems like a better place to sit and kind of watch the river, right? As if you were perhaps maybe more concerned about or interactions with Europeans. That's sort of speculative. But I think it's interesting. It's still the place where every year the Passamaquoddy uh, paddle out into the bay. This is still the place where the Passamaquoddy pull in to watch the tide to turn and to know it's time to go, right? Um, so really interesting spot on the landscape. I mentioned that there are not a lot of these protohistoric habitation sites and part of the reason for that is probably that many of them are sitting right on top of late woodland sites yep and there is uh in these shallow deposits just a lot of disturbance right there's bioturbation which is so roots and stuff stirring things up um and well at port jolly wasn't there like a a very thin possible protohistoric layer there is, yeah. There's a there's a protostoric layer right at the top of ALDF 24. Yeah, yeah, um, which is cool. Which um, is a spot where they actually reoccupied the same space. They didn't move wigwams there. That's right. They stayed yeah, in the yeah. same spot. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, so that's what's going on. I mean, and then, um, but we do not have a lot of good habitation sites. We've got a few others. Yep. Um, and and before we get into sort of the remaining sites, like so, um, you see this shift in subsistence at at Devil's Head, uh, but there's general agreement basically in a lot of the ethnohistoric documentation that, um, like we talked about before, uh, the Kennebec River seemed to demarcate the territories where you had uh, horticulturalists and hunter fisher gatherers. Um, interesting, you know, that you do start to see. Um, crops growing in the in other regions in the in the post-contact period um some of which may actually be a result of um uh, populations moving into 
uh, different areas as a result of some of this warfare that we had mentioned. So um, Harold Prince talks about how uh, the corn growing at, at Maductic may have been Velastigwig, um, who had essentially uh, adopted in um, a group of uh, uh, Abenaki who had who were corn growers originally, and basically were fleeing uh, British and, and Iroquoian pressure uh, in parts of Maine and, and sort of uh, settled in Meductic with, with a group of Velastigwig who were always live, already living there. Um, and the groups sort of adopted growing corn uh, as a result of that. Um, savvy, the savvy listener will hear the gom-like tone in Ken's voice as he decides not to talk about the St. Lawrence Iroquoians. Just thinking we could just blow this right up. Oh yeah, yeah, and and yeah, yeah. That, I guess that's also a possibility, eh? So, um, do we want to get into St. Lawrence here coins here? You want to? We don't. We don't actually have them in the show notes. I don't think. I know they're not in the show notes. I I specifically left them out because I thought to myself, you know, just in the interest of someday getting done. Um, yeah, we could probably talk about it in the next episode. I think St. Lawrence here coins can be next episode. We're, yeah. we've sort of decided. Yeah, I I I want to loop back just a quick on Devil's Head. The other thing that was going on Devil's Head is it, it potentially overlaps with Champlain's occupation at St. Croix, which yep. is like they would have been able to smell it, see it from Devil's Head. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. Sort of and laugh at them as they freeze during the winter. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we call that the little ice age suckers. Yeah. yeah. Um, there is persistence in the use of stone tools into the post-contact period. So one of the things that Adrian Burke has talked about in his 2022 article in the Far Northeast volume is that uh, uh, corner and side notch points probably persist into the post-contact, which is kind of interesting. Um, you know, there's some evidence of use of, like, for example, Washington Chert. Um, we found what might be an 18th century site on the shores of Bellier's Cove. You get a change in um, technology. Yeah, we did. We and... thought it was a bad radiocarbon date. Uh, no, that's uh, oh. that's Swan Creek, which we'll talk about in a moment. Okay, cool. But cool. Uh, there was some early 18th century um, European ceramics found in amongst a whole bunch mm -hmm. of uh, uh, sort of bipolar, shattered, and and blade flakes and things uh, on the shores of Washington Lake, which looks to be probably an eroding campsite of some kind. Um, uh, but interesting that we found the historic ceramics sort of mixed in with this stuff and um, may indicate some kind of post-contact uh, indigenous encampment on the can shoreline. I, can I get you to explain, um, when you describe a flag as bipolar, you're not referring to its neurodivergence, you're referring no, to... No, no, and so, and so what you see starting in the increasing in the late woodland, um, and I don't know if I talked about this last week, I think I talked about bipolar wedges um as yeah. as sort of a splitting tool and so uh bipolar technology is as opposed to taking a uh, a percussor which i don't think i need to explain to the uh the listener oddly know it bubs <laughs> <laughs> uh but uh, instead of taking a percussor so an antler or another rock and breaking a rock off what you do is you take uh your your lithic material and you place it on an anvil or a more stable rock and then you bash it with another rock and this produces uh, uh, different types of flakes and debris that come off of the rock and um, makes a number of sort of straight and very sharp implements, um, some with like tapering edges and that kind of thing, which are particularly well suited for stuff like um, ash, basketry, and, and, you know, cutting birch bark, maybe you're making cordage and that kind of thing that we suspect people are doing more of um, uh, in the late woodland and into the proto-historic uh, proto period. 
Um, and at this site on, on in Bellier's Cove, uh, a number of blade flakes, which are kind of interesting, really would be, again, very sharp things would be very good for like processing fish or something like that as well. Um, yeah, absolutely, yeah. And so uh, along with that, you get the appearance of European trade goods being used in traditional ways. And so uh, in the Great Lakes and throughout New England, you get a word called trade points. Um, uh, Bradley in his 2012 um, uh, New England projectile point typology, is that what it's called? Uh, oh, shoot. Well, anyway, talks yeah, about yeah. this. And, and so Bo uh, Boudreau, you get right? Of... You're talking about Boudreaux? Oh, may, yeah, maybe it's Boudreaux, not Bradley. We've yeah, crossed yeah. up Bradley and Boudreaux. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So um, yeah, yeah. Uh, so a number of these points are made on stuff like brass, copper, bronze, iron, and steel. They're usually triangles. Um, so, you know, if you think about the late woodland, we talked about Lavanna madison points. Um, it's sort of a continuation of that kind of like template for how you make a yeah. point, maybe. Some of these are probably notched. Um, a number of them have holes punched through them, which is kind of interesting, that may be part of a half element. Uh, maybe a way to carry a number of them strung together could be kind of like a toggling harpoon kind of idea too. Like, you know, not exactly sure. Yeah, we had um, these in Southern New England at uh, Pequot War Sites. Yeah, yeah. So you found a bunch of these, and and I, well, I, I didn't. Found... I wish I did, but the project did. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, we, <laughs> yeah, we yeah. found we didn't find any points, but we found a number of like cut copper fragments. Oh yeah. Um, that are probably kettle fragments at the 17th century site that we excavated in Rouge Park up in Southern Ontario. Oh, nice. Um, yeah. which is you know well, something we cut you'd copper at devil's head too just not cut into points okay yeah, yeah 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 so and so so what what the thinking is is that some of this copper is coming from trade items so like for example uh brass and copper kettles um which we i think we talked about in the context of copper kettle burials or who we talked no, we about haven't yet we're we're coming we up to that yet. so we're going to get yeah, to yeah. those um and then <laughs> alongside um sort of the, the night is still young of use of stone tools um, and this probably more like we're talking 18th or 19th century, you get the, uh, you, you see the appearance of what are potentially glass artifacts, um, some of which are, you know, oral history among the Wolostoquig, for example, talk about using sharp uh, pieces of glass to, uh, for cutting and for, you know, like making things. Um, archaeologically, some of this was recovered at the Gemsag site in, in what was probably an 18th or 19th century context. Um, you had to be really careful with this. So George O'Dell talks about, um, uh, calls them bova facts. And so there's been some experimental archaeological work done with um, trampling of um, uh, shallow glass pieces um, in, in an area where like cattle are, which is, you yeah. know, could be a lot of these sort of 18th and 19th century sites. Um, and there there is a tendency for uh, this incidental um, trampling to actually cause uh, breakage patterns that could be construed as um, uh, could be construed as artifacts, but you know, I, I think it'd be it'd be a little bit petty of us to say that none of these are artifacts. Um, yeah. I think you just got to be really careful about it. And and you know, like everything that we talk about in archaeology, a lot of this is, has to do with context. And so, if you're finding what look to be worked glass artifacts in amongst you know pipe stems and all sorts of other stuff that look like they're probably domestic debris, I think you're probably um, you're probably safe in interpreting these as as likely worked glass, and and we, yeah. we do know that groups are doing that. And so, but yeah, I think so these are right some the, of the, so, the yeah, so these are some of the minor ways that like what was oh, that? Sorry, that yeah, but wild enthusiasm about glass flakes is probably often unwarranted. I think. Yeah, yeah, and and, and you know, deciding the place is a site because you found some might not be a, yeah. a safe bet, but, but so so these are some of the interesting. 
uh, continuities and technological practice and the ways that kind of like lithic technology and sort of this um, approach to making tools uh, persists even with the introduction of European goods. Um, and along with that, you also see this reflected in burial practice. And so you have copper kettle burials um, becoming kind of a thing that I think sort of gets a lot of attention, right? Well, I think maybe what we're doing is we're getting back a little bit this visibility problem where the when the habitation sites in the protostoric period are so low visibility, yep. but at the same time, you start to get burials that have that are elaborate, you know, got all sorts of stuff in them, including European goods, um, and then have copper kettles in them, some of which have been apparently ritually killed. Yeah. So, so you've got this, I think, disconnect between visibility where you've got these just really, really visible sites, and then you've got these very hard to detect sites. Does that kind of fit with your understanding? Yeah, yeah. And, and we won't get into sort of the nitty gritty on these but like uh, uh kind of a famous example would be old mission point yep. um uh and uh and then there's some other there's a lot of sort of early late 19th and early 20th century accounts of um unfortunately a lot of these copper kettle burials being encountered or looked for um some of which was coming in the context of like some of these weren't being encountered by you know the installation of the railways and stuff like that um and these burials were being uncovered uh in in that uh, in that context one of the things I can throw in the show notes is just um, there's been work on kind of the symbolism about these copper kettle burials, right? You know, why the why the kettles are killed, what the inclusions might imply. Um, you know, Bruce Bork has talked about that they represent some of the wealth that's been accumulated, perhaps from uh, Mi'kmaq Mi'g Mi'g people basically working as middlemen, right? That they're starting this, this represents maybe a particular economic success. Calvin Martin has talked about the different lives that a copper kettle could have and what the effect of introducing these durable, portable container technologies could have been um, to indigenous people. So there's, there's been a lot of work on this and we will, we will put some of that in the show notes. Yeah. And, and so what are these, um, what are we starting to see in terms of the, what do the sites look like? Um, Dave Black has talked about this. Well, yeah, so this is this is an interesting question. We we seem to get some pretty specialized sites, some pretty artifact poor sites. This is stuff like ledge, uh, the ledge site in the Bliss Islands that Dave's worked at um, is 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 one of the examples. Um, and I, I think in many ways, just like we, we talked about Devil's Head, what we're seeing in some ways is an amplification of the late woodland patterns, right, where we're getting more and more specialization and we're getting uh, more and more interaction. Yeah. And, and you know much more about the interior examples that you've talked about a, a little bit, just their presence, but maybe if you give a quick rundown here of just what's been found at some of these interior uh, habitation sites. Yeah, so, so one of them is um, a possible 18th century site uh, from Swan Creek Lake East. So um, uh, Gabe spoke earlier, you know, I uh, I pulled the uh, uh, John Reese Davies uh, bad dates card uh, <laughs> in my uh, uh, in my um, in my <laughs> master's thesis uh, uh, because I was puzzled by it wasn't modern, but it wasn't um, yeah. pre-contact. Um, the uncalibrated date is like two twenty plus or minus thirty BP. You know, calibrated 
runs somewhere between you know uh, uh, late six, uh, 1600s to the sort of mid um, mid to late 1700s. Um, but the site was discovered during the um, uh, uh, twinning of the Trans Canada Highway. Um, and all the technology at the site appears sort of exactly what you would expect to see during the late woodland a late woodland occupation. The site's probably a small uh, wigwam. Um, there's sort of an interior and an exterior hearth area. There's maybe a couple possible storage pits there. Um, kind of a fascinating little site. Um, but like I said, you know, the technology looks very late woodland. Um, it's mostly local material, um, uh, uh, but uh, but kind of an interesting example there. Um, there's a couple of likely 17th century artifacts from Fulton Island. Um, so Chris Turnbull talks about a couple of clay pipes and a copper bell that were recovered there. Um, there's a likely post-contact component at Gemsag um, that includes pipe stems that likely group in the early to mid 17th century uh, alongside some glass beads. Um, and while there were no sort of discrete uh, post-contact features that were indigenous in origin. There were sort of artifact clusters that indicated they, uh, you know, although the features were difficult to detect because the plow zone and stuff like that, um, probably these were uh, uh, these were uh, uh, artifact clusters indicating sort of activity areas or or, or habitation areas. Um, and this is happening in the context of sort of the expansion of European presence um, in that area. And so you have Fort Gemsag being built in 1659 by Thomas Temple um, as a fort and a trading post. Uh, it kind of goes back and forth between French, uh, Dutch, and, and uh, uh, a, a French again control into the late 1600s. Um, you had the uh, French settlement on Grimross Island, um, sort of uh, 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 namesake of my favorite beer, so the Maritime <laughs> Pale Ale. Um, we are still and, looking for a sponsor. Uh, yeah, there you go. I, I would love that. If they, mm -hmm. uh, they want to send, if, if, uh, if Grimross is listening uh, and you want to send a case of Maritime Pale Ale to uh, Alberta, please let me know. Uh, I would be happy to promo uh, the living heck out of that. So we should we should um, do an, an episode live from from Grimross. I think I think actually I might have to make that we might have to make that happen. I would say, um, yeah. You've got a fort at Nashwalk. Uh, so that's at the mouth of the Nashwalk River. Um, Speaking of bars. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So so uh, lovely pub, Cannon's Cross. Um, actually, the motel, the, the Fort Nashwalk Motel is not at the fort. Um, it's yeah, actually yeah. right at the mouth of the river where there was an old oil tank storage um, uh, is the more likely lo uh, original location. So <laughs> You did some somebody... serum over there, didn't you? Uh, no, I didn't. I think Trevor did. Oh, Trevor did. Okay. I, I had a, I had a, um, my uncle worked for the city at the time. Oh, okay. Um, and told me a story about the uh, heavy petroleum presence in the in the pipe infrastructure in that oh, area. Dear. Oh, um, So if somebody wants to do a super fun dig of a of a rather interesting what was what was actually at one time I think Fort Nashville was sort of the um, one of the main hubs in Acadia. Um, I think it was. But, that's, um, that's my understanding. Yeah. And as we travel up the river, um, you have Meductic, which is fairly famous. Um, uh, probably was occupied at least in the late woodland, uh, if not earlier. Um, the pre-contact archaeology is not incredibly well understood. Um, uh, French fort, uh, French presence was established in the 16th century. Um, it eventually, or 17th century, sorry, and ends up becoming uh, a fort and kind of a, a trade nexus. The the site itself is actually in, in, located in a fairly interesting. Uh, location at the end of of sort of a famous portage route um, called the Maliseet Trail, 
um, ran from basically the Wolostock River along what's now called Eel River up into um, uh, into the state of Maine. And it ends at, uh, not the Minuxnakeg, what's the, I can't remember where it leaves off in Maine. I thought it didn't the Minuxnakeg. Oh, maybe it is. Maybe it is the Maduxon cake in Maine, right? It, yeah, somewhere near Holton, right? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, and this was a travel route that would have been, you know, pre-contact in origin and, and persisted right through the historic period. Um, Maductic, obviously famous because we talked about um, corn was being observed, was observed being grown there in the early 18th century, maybe as early as the late 17th century. We know about it from the accounts, uh, the, the memoirs of odd adventures and strange deliverances uh, that uh, uh, J- John Giles' reflection on uh, who was a Brit. Uh, is that correct? A British settler? Oh, I actually don't know that. I, um, but he was captured by um, the Wollastogwig uh, during one of the King yeah. William's conflicts. We wrote a captivity um, narrative. Yeah, and wrote a captivity narrative and actually ended up becoming a fairly interesting um, sort of first-person account of uh, daily life sort of moving yeah. up and down the river. Um, and one It's like a genre that... of, uh, of, of early of kind of contact literature with people who were captured and, and wrote accounts of their time. It turned out Indigenous people were mostly pretty nice to them. They just didn't let them go for a while. Yeah, yeah. And, and they so... would... Yeah. Mary Rawlinson yeah. wrote one. Giles wrote one. Lots of people. Yeah. Yeah. Um, was a was a, a fairly famous roadside motel for those of you in who used to travel the Trans-Canada Highway. Um, we learned today it, outside, it uh, burned. Yeah. We yeah. Rather tragic yeah. end to uh, to a, a roadside motel that many of us, uh, you know, remember the old the really good German restaurant that used to be there. Uh, Gabe, Gabe yeah, was saying that, that the, yeah. the, your family used to go there as well. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, uh, and then you, in other places like it, so in Metapanagia, you have, um, persistence of use of that area, um, uh, Sue Blair and Michael Rooney and, and then Sue and Jesse Webb and Matt Litvak also did some work talking about the sturgeon fishery, um, how that likely persisted past the post, uh, pre-contact period up until the 19th century when the sturgeon were extirpated. Um, but that this sort of m- memory of sturgeon persisted through um, depictions of sturgeon on on uh, like canoes and paddles and that yeah. kind of thing. So it's um, close association to particular uh, species. That's that's yeah. a, sort of a hallmark of Algonquian and, and hunter gatherer ontology in general, really. Yeah, and so and and possibly one of the most famous accounts. Um, uh, we don't have a whole lot of archaeological information on it, but certainly one of the most famous uh, historical accounts is that Champlain in 1604 described a place at the mouth of the Wolastog and, and what's called present present day is now called Navy Island, but it's actually, it's not even Navy Island. It's like a, it's the like Southwest pier of the St. John Harbor bridge. And so there's like one patch of grass, a, a pier for a bridge and then a, a, a shipping uh, port basically. Um, but Champlain described and what he observed, and actually, I think it's depicted on one of the maps, um, yes, was a palisaded yeah, yeah. was a palisaded village of some kind, some configuration. So palisaded area, several large and small huts, and the quote is that one of which was as big as a market hall and housed by many families, which is sort of the classic sort of description of what you would expect to be like a longhouse, right? And so yeah. there is potential that under you know 
construction gravel, if any piece of it survived on this jut of land in the city of St. John and sort of the west side of the harbor, um, there was at one time an, probably a fairly important Belastigwig village um, uh, that was palisaded in the early 1600s, which suggests some kind of either preparation or anticipation of, of either um, conflict um, or maybe the, uh, an awareness of the, the non-Indigenous presence um, and, and a certain caution to it, um, uh, sort of being prepared. Yeah, I think it was Arthur Anderson who pointed out to me that um, once you be a little bit leery of, of Champlain's maps, that, that the one he made of the Chuakowit site in, uh, in Southern Maine, if you took it, how is it we're told we're supposed to take Donald Trump uh, seriously but not literally? Yeah, yeah. Perhaps seriously, but not literally, is how we're supposed to take Champlain. And that if um, I can't remember the exact thing, but he sort of kind of tried to figure it out. And that if the drawings uh, Champlain had made of longhouses were taken both literally and seriously, they would be the size of like the Sears Tower, you know, laid on its side. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and, yeah. And he may have wanted to see villages and was seeing villages in places yeah. maybe that they weren't actually there. Yeah. So, um, uh, yeah, village of Filiac. But uh, but yeah, that's I I mean there aren't we like you said we don't have a really good sense of uh, this proto historic period. We we have you know uh, we have a lot of plow zone archaeology, and so we're talking about because these are the most recent, probably you know prior to sort of the established Euro Canadian presence in the region or Euro American presence. Um, these sort of would have been the last. Um, uh, period of sustained indigenous occupation of a lot of these places. And, and a lot of these places end up becoming, um, you know, contemporary cities and towns, uh, agricultural lands. And so the plow zone extends usually, you know, about 30 centimeters or 12 feet down um, below the surface. Um, and so you have an intermixing of stuff. And so you have a really hard time parsing out, you know, what is a teacup that was dropped from a, a tractor uh, uh, versus what was actually, you know, part of maybe a, a small campsite down by the river in the summer, basically. Absolutely. Well, um, and our, our final note oh. here, I think we've already covered. So we can, I think we have some shallops. Um, the, uh, and I think every time I see that word, I think scallops and I get excited. Yeah. Boys, I'm some excited about some scallops this summer. I'll bet you. <laughs> um, <laughs> Digby scallops. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. And we talked, we, we did that thing where we talked about the end of the protostar before we get to the end of us discussing the protostar. So I think um, what we're going to try to do, and listen, if you, if you thought this was potentially a little bit rough, just wait till we talk about historical archaeology in a fortnight um, where, where we can really be out uh, over our, uh, over our skis. Um, but the good news is there just hasn't been that much work. So we could pretty much make it up. Yeah, yeah, which yeah, we may exactly. do. That's that's yeah, just, so. that's the safest route. Yeah, yeah I'd say. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, uh, we do have some hit pieces this week, though. We uh, do. Again, yep. Um, and I, we've we've got one is uh, a little bit self-serving, frankly. Which is that uh, our book? So the the listener may know Ken and I edited a book called Far North East Three Thousand BP um, to Contact, and it's not available wherever fine books are sold, but it is available from things like Amazon, or it was published by the University of Ottawa Press, 
in coordination with the Canadian Mercury series. Um, a lot of good articles in it, we think. Um, and it was reviewed by Ken Sassman very nicely in North, the most recent Northeast Anthropology, the 90th um, Northeast Anthropology. Uh, and it, it, at least for me, Ken, I was pretty excited because uh, I'm a big admirer of Ken Sassman and Ken Sassman's work. Um, that all of his uh, stuff I like a lot. And he uh, wrote a very nice review about it, commented some of the papers, and uh, really appreciate it. So thank you very yeah. much, Ken. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Ken. That was, uh, and and likewise, I, I've admired a lot of his work and kind of followed um, with with fascination a lot of the stuff he puts out there. And uh, he, he's one of these big thinkers that manages to take sort of make culture history really cool and fun and and uh, think think big, sort of. Uh, he is, um, yeah. So, uh, but also uh, a, and, and, a very nice guy and a lot of fun to talk to. Um, yeah, very genuine. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, he came to U of T when I was there and, and uh, spent basically two days just hanging out with grad students and was more interested in what we were doing than telling us about what he was doing. So, which, which I think everybody thought was pretty neat. So, yeah. Um, and, and, and Gabe's I, being, and, Gabe is being wrote, humble here too. Hold on. I'm not quite, cause I want to talk about Ken, just Ken's asking for just okay, a minute. Right, which, right. Um, the, the listener, if, um, if they're interested in a kind of broad overview of North American archaeology, like if you like the kind of stuff Ken and I are talking about, I'm sure you can check out Ken Sassman and Tim Paukatat did yep. a really good uh, overview of all of North America. The archaeology worth checking out of ancient North America. Hold on, let me get let me get that right because their their title yeah, is very. Right. Uh, hold on, it is the archaeology of ancient North America. Yeah, so that came out in 2020. Um, yeah. Fantastic textbook. Um, it's it's so I. I rely on it and on Brian Fagan's textbook sort of for te when I teach North America. Um, Fagan kind of gives you the brass tacks and, and Paukatat and Sassman really um, weave a really fascinating story and have some really great uh, bookend with um, talking about uh, indigenous people and their persistence on the land and, and contemporary times and sort of contextualizing it. And, um, uh, so, so really excellent read for, for those of you. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it really is. Yeah. Um, and uh, and Gabe was being humble here uh, because uh, there was actually another book review in uh, in uh, Northeast Anthropology uh, number ninety uh, by Amanda Samuels um, who reviewed the Archaeology of the Atlantic Northeast by uh, by uh, Matthew Betts and Gabe Reinick. So um, congratulations, Matt and Gabe. Another another uh, another very positive review. Uh, for what the another... listener doesn't know is is that this is actually the uh, the um, the the American comedic uh, novelist. Christopher Buckley once uh, wrote a series of book reviews that purported to be about fly fishing, um, but but uh, not all of the books actually existed, and and the one that that didn't exist was called Mass Holes, and it was a it was a, supposed to be a, 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 a sorry Bass Holes uh, was what it was called uh, about about bass fishing, and um, and even though the book didn't exist, he reviewed it as if it did, and apparently for. For decades, people have gone into bookstores looking to buy bass holes, and uh, I've always thought it'd be kind of fun. You're going to be the new the new book review editor at CJA, apparently. And at some so, point. Uh, at some point. Yeah, yeah, but I think you should occasionally let in a fictitious review of. Uh, of <laughs> I I don't know. I is is that stuff like is satire even 
allowed these days. Like, uh, you know, I, I think the a number of people that will get angry versus the number of people that will believe it wholeheartedly and start a new religion about it frightens me. Like, uh, I don't think anybody would be here. pleased with it. So. I, well, except you, who would only have to do, you know, one issue as before you got canceled as CGA <laughs> book review editor. And you know, it, it would stop having the thankless task of, uh, of having there to send go. these things out. Could be a strategy. Could um, be a strategy. So I've got other uh, ideas too. I'll talk to you offline about. It. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so um, we also want to highlight uh, the Canadian Museum of History has released a podcast called Artifactuality. Um, and episode three just dropped featuring uh, uh, New Brunswick Archaeology podcast guest, uh, Gabe Yannicki. That's right. Um, and he's, uh, um, he's just... uh, a, a regular at the Chili's at the, uh, <laughs> at the Calgary Airport. The Calgary yeah. Airport. Yeah. 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 Um, and so I get his uh, Gabe, mail a lot by accident um, because I, I think there's, there's not that many games in Canadian archaeology and you know our, our last names are both vaguely ethnic so I think I, I'll, I'll get these sort of mundane emails that appear to involve the Canadian Museum of History and I'll think oh, wrong game yeah, you both have a Y a C and a K in your name actually exactly, in your yeah. last name so yeah that's a, um, and so uh, Gabe is actually it's a it's about a half hour episode um, uh, and and really interesting so he's talking with Blackfoot um uh elders and and uh um Leroy Little uh, Dr. Leroy Little Bear who is actually has a, an affiliation with the University of Lethbridge and um was the uh um I believe the chancellor for some time um but uh he's an indigenous scholar um uh, a blackfoot from the blackfoot nation and and so uh, the discussion is about the Wally's beach site that we talked about previously um the ice free corridor and sort of oral histories and blackfoot perceptions of the landscape and how um, connection to landscape and, and archaeology um, are really important things. And so it's it's an inter- <clears throat> interesting set of interviews. Um, they also go to uh, uh, Head Smashed in Buffalo Jump as well. And and uh, we'd encourage you to check it out. We'll provide a link to the, maybe to the Apple Podcasts version of it, but uh, 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 the whole po- podcast is kind of interesting. Uh, yeah, it covers absolutely. more than just archaeology. Um, and then our our final item uh, is uh, we wanted to highlight it's visible a CBC... through a pedal craft uh, party bike, I believe. Is this the CBC article? Yes, exactly. Yes, yeah, so this ties in. Earlier. Yeah, it ties in with our. Um, and so uh, the city of Fredericton uh, has had a recent report issued, uh, which uh, encourages the city to um, actually kind of expand the heritage status for buildings in the. Uh, east end of the south side so sort of the um, kind of the east end of the plat um, and sort of as opposed to having kind of a piecemeal approach to heritage designation sort of make up this larger heritage district um, which uh, and having uh, working with private landowners over the next few years to sort of get them to sign off on having heritage designations to their houses and so you know that comes with you know the buy-in for the owners they probably need to be incentivized because it limits sort of alterations you can make to the exterior of the building, uh, whether or not you can tear it down, all this other stuff. But um, I think would actually be a really good thing for Heritage. You know, I think Fredericton does a fairly good job of sort of celebrating its past, but uh, but this would definitely be something kind of bump up tourism. Um, I agree. As, as, a, as a homeowner in what would be the, the Heritage District, actually, I am uh, sort of in favor of this. I mean, it's, it's a very American approach. I've had Heritage Districts in the United States for a long time. Yeah. Um, and, and my view on it is that it's not much different than other forms of zoning. Um, yeah. And that it's a zoning, I think, that uh, enhances the city usually. And, and you know, uh, uh, as you'll as the listener will experience on that bike tour, uh, it's a it's an area of the city that is well worth 
um, having designated that way. It's it's a beautiful area. The houses are absolutely stunning and and uh, um, really, I think, would be a great way to sort of think forward in terms of uh, preservation in that in that area. And given the flooding, it'll be there for at least 15 years, I would say. <laughs> yeah, at, at yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. It slowly he says subsides. nervously. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> not that, not that um, I have a flood map on my wall. <laughs> yeah. And, and, uh, and finally, obviously, uh, it is pride month. And so we just want to, um, we wanted to acknowledge that and, and, uh, um, you know, share our support for all communities and, and celebrate New Brunswickers of, of all backgrounds. So yes, indeed. Well, Ken, are we looking at a half finished bottle of Corvassier? I think so. I think so. I think I, we're a, a tight two tonight. I think we're, t- it's, it's 10 past one here, which makes me think that we have, uh, We've landed this Lord. vessel at uh, at remarkable uh, remarkable efficiency. How does the, June fifteenth uh, feel? The uh, yeah, I mean it uh, it uh, it feels like I've I've traveled through time, like it does pretty much every podcast that you actually can. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I mean I think last time it was strange. I think I lost two days. It was it was like that the late Woodman one. It was like the the time I flew from New Zealand <laughs> to North America. The uh, <laughs> where am I? You know? the um well should we we bid the listener good night good morning wherever they may be yeah i think so and and thank you listener and we look forward to hearing from you as uh as we we close in on the uh last few episodes of season one of the new brunswick archaeology podcast and listener remember send in topics you might be interested in hearing about to uh, our email address and we are looking forward to chatting with you next fortnight Hit that like button. Thanks, listener. Talk to you soon.